Well, it is so good to be with you here today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Josh, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at this campus. And I uh, want to also welcome those of you who are watching online. I know that uh, Alex, and we've got a team in Egypt, uh, might be joining us at this point. And so can we just uh, give it up for all those that are watching online with us today? We're so glad that you've tuned in. And uh, we've been in the midst of this series called Flip the Script, where we've been learning how to identify and respond to God's voice in a world that, frankly, is just so good at distracting us from it. In fact, if this is your first time here with us at Battle Creek, whether you're here in this room or or watching online or in one of our venues, uh, my hope is that you'll find some time this week to go back to the beginning of this series and really uh, go through, because our senior pastor, Alex, has offered some incredibly helpful tools uh, for flipping the script on things like fear and insecurity and these negative thoughts that really prevent us from living out the fullness of life that I know we are all striving for. In fact, if, if you're with us today and as we continue to talk about this flip the script, today we're going to talk about something that we all deal with. This is something that whether you're here and you're exploring faith, perhaps, perhaps you're skeptical about faith, or maybe you've been walking with Christ for the majority of your life. Either way, this is something that we all grapple with and ultimately all have to find an answer for. Today, we're going to talk about condemnation. And at times, condemnation is something that comes from others who are against us. But for most of us, I think the greatest condemnation comes from within. And so what is condemnation? Well, condemnation is when guilt jumps to conclusions. Have you ever jumped to a conclusion about something? Perhaps you, uh, you congratulated a woman who was pregnant, only to find out that she wasn't. I remember at one time, uh, one Sunday morning, I was talking to an elderly gentleman, and we were having a great conversation up until the point that I looked at the young woman next to him, and I said, I don't know that you've introduced me to your daughter. Uh, turns out it was actually his wife. And so that, that conversation ended very quickly and abruptly. But it can be easy to jump to conclusions at times, and condemnation is when guilt jumps to conclusions. Now, guilt is what you feel, is when you feel bad for something that you've done. And in that sense, I think guilt is actually a good thing because it stops us from repeating harmful or negative behaviors in our life. But when guilt jumps to a conclusion, it can turn into a condemnation. Now, for those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Christ, it is so important for us to realize that God is not the source of condemnation. In fact, in Romans 8, 1, it tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from condemnation. Jesus has paid the price, and we no longer have to deal with those consequences. And so why is it then that so many of us walk around feeling condemned? Well, it has to do with that voice that's inside of us that just keeps nagging at us, and it drowns out the Word of God in our lives. And and here's how it works. You've got guilt, which says, I did it, and condemnation says, I am it. You see, guilt jumps to the conclusion that if you did it, then, then you are it. Condemnation is a tool that the enemy uses to mess with our identity, to jack up our identity. And our enemy is not just trying to get us to make mistakes over and over in life. Our enemy wants us thinking that we are 
a mistake. See, guilt says, I messed up. But the enemy wants you to say, I am a mess up. Guilt says, I did something bad, but the enemy wants you to say, you are something bad. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these two different voices, the the voice of God and then the voice inside of us. In fact, throughout this series, we've said that, that God does not have a speaking problem. Rather, we have a hearing problem. And the problem isn't necessarily because we don't want to hear God. It's that we can't hear him because that other voice inside of us is just so loud. But the voice of condemnation is a liar. And the truth is that for those of us who are in Christ, we are no longer condemned. But unfortunately, that truth doesn't make that voice go away. In fact, as you and I both know, that voice just continues to accuse us each and every day. And so how do we flip the script on condemnation? Well, if you have a Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to open to Zechariah uh, chapter 3. If you're using a Bible app, it's going to be all the way down in the Z's. But if you're using a real Bible, it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. And Zechariah 3, that's where we're going to be today. But I think it's important to acknowledge that Zechariah is not one of the more quoted books that we have in the Bible. In fact, of all the coffee mugs that have Bible verses on them, the ones with Zechariah are not the ones that are flying off the shelves. And for some of you, this may be even the first time that you've actually looked for this book, Zechariah. And so I want to give us some context here so that we are all uh, understanding what's going on and what's taking place. You see, throughout much of the Old Testament, You have God's people being led by this threefold leadership approach. You've got prophets, priests, and kings. And the prophets were instructing the people. They communicated on behalf of God. Then you've got the priests who were interceding for the people and dealing with the people's sins. And then you've got the kings who were protecting and ruling over the people of God. And all three of them were involved in the leadership of God's people. So Zechariah, he was a prophet who spoke to the people on behalf of God. And and he was one of the last prophets that we see in the Old Testament. At this point in history, Israel has continued to just be unfaithful. They've been conquered by one of the enemies of Babylon because God said, if you're not faithful, I will hand you over to these people. And because of their disobedience, they've been exiled, but they're finally returning from captivity. And as the people returned, God gave Zechariah some visions or some dreams that were intended to paint a reality for the people of God and inspire them to renew their faith. And so that's the context that we're jumping into. You've got Zechariah as a prophet communicating this vision to the people of God. And we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me Joshua. Now let me just say, What a good, solid biblical name uh, that is. (laughs) Then the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. So Zechariah's vision begins with Joshua, this high priest before the angel of the Lord, standing in the presence of God. And, And throughout the Old Testament, some further context for us, you've got the Ark of the Covenant, which is what represented the presence of God. And that Ark was kept in the Holy of Holies which was the innermost room of the temple. And the high priest, who in this case is Joshua, would only be allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. 
And so as we look at the words of this vision, you've got the high priest in the presence of God. It would make sense that, that this is a vision of that day, the, a vision of the Day of Atonement or a Yom Kippur. In fact, if, if you've looked at a calendar recently, whether it's a calendar app or a paper calendar, you probably have seen that holiday, Yom Kippur. In fact, it was this last Sunday. And that was the day, the Day of Atonement, the one day that the priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer this special sacrifice that would cover the sins of the entire nation, but only for one year. And then next year, they'd have to do it all over again. And then the year after that. But in order for the, the high priest to even enter the Holy of Holies, he had to be ritually pure for seven days. And if the high priest were to become unclean for any reason over the course of those seven days, then when the Day of Atonement came, he couldn't do his job. He would not be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, which meant he couldn't offer the sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. So, I mean, this was a big, big deal. This was a serious matter. In fact, it was so serious that they actually built this special room in the temple for him. And, and for seven days, he would live in that room with no human contact. In today's terms, that's like half a quarantine, right? And, and as long as he stayed in that room, he was safe from being defiled. And so imagine here, Joshua is in the Holy of Holies. He's trying to do his work. And then you get this shift in the scene as we continue in verse 1. It says, The accuser, Satan was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua. Now, at the beginning of verse 1, we saw a phrase, standing before the angel of the Lord. And in that verse, that is actually legal terminology. And so the picture that we get here is that Joshua is on trial, and Satan is the accuser. You see, whether we want to admit it or not, we have an enemy. And that enemy's goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And to do this, he utilizes certain tactics. One of the tactics that our enemy uses is temptation. And I think that this is probably how we uh, most often view our enemy is him tempting us to do things. He tells us this lie that sin is good for us and that it won't hurt us. But as we know, sin will always take us further than we want to go. It's always going to cost us more than we want to pay. And it's going to keep us there longer than we want to stay. And so temptation is a lie. But on the other hand, he has another tactic that he often uses— accusation. So you got temptation and accusation as tactics of the enemy. But from my perspective, this one, this one is far more deadly. You see, Satan is a Hebrew word that literally means accuser. I mean, his identity is, is bound up in what he does. He accuses us before God. In fact, in other spots of scripture, we see in like Revelation 12, verse 10, that, the, that Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that he accuses us before God both night and day. And he's looking through our past. He's looking at all of those past behaviors and actions from before we came to Christ and then even after we've come to Christ. And he's using those, these mistakes to condemn us. And here's the key difference. Temptation is a lie, but accusation is based on truth. 
And that's what makes it so deadly. You see, since accusation is based on truth, it's easy for us to agree with it. He will tell us a truth about our lives, mistakes that we've made, and we know that we can't deny it because it's true. But here's the thing. It may be truth, but it's not the whole truth. And it's nothing but the truth. Satan is going to search our past, all these wrongs that we've done. And it's almost as if he's developing this scrapbook of all of our sins. And I know some of you are saying, well, that scrapbook would have to be a lot bigger if it was my life. Got this scrapbook of our sins that Satan is collecting. And, and I don't know about you, but it seems like Satan likes to pull this out right when we're taking a step of faith in our life. You know, we've committed that we're going to start coming to church each and every week. You know, we're starting to serve within the church. Maybe we finally have decided to, to start trusting God with the area of our finances. We're digging into our community group. We're, we're starting to read scripture, and then here comes that voice. You think you're doing pretty good, huh? I'm, I'm glad that, that you're there with, with all of your Christian friends in church, but, but how about this picture from Vegas four years ago? I know who you really are. He, and he flips the page and he goes, oh, how about all of the, the text messages that you sent to your ex that I've got here? I know that you're, you're taking steps in life, but, but you're kind of a hypocrite. And he keeps turning the pages until he hits your biggest regret in life. Uh, this has certainly been the case for me in my life. You know, I grew up in an incredible a Christian home. I've been blessed to have such an incredible family. My dad was a pastor in ministry for three decades before transitioning into being the director of a Christian counseling center. And my mom has spent years teaching those with special needs and, and then elementary school. I mean, I really could not have asked for a better life. But unfortunately, the results of our broken world as just a little kid, some four or five years old, I experienced some traumatic encounters that were outside of the home that really affected me. And it affected me throughout my entire childhood and even as I entered into ministry. And I genuinely believed that, that God is who he said he was. I felt called into ministry, but at the same time, the results of that trauma in my childhood caused me to slip into this vicious cycle of depression and anxiety that led to decisions that only perpetuated those feelings of condemnation in my life. I remember at one point in college being so angry with God that I just decided, I'm done. I'm going to give in to, to whatever it is that the world has to offer. I'm just going to indulge because anything has to be better than the pain and the numbness that I was feeling. And I think one of the lies that the enemy used in that season that he led me to believe is that, that once I entered ministry, that all of those struggles and all of that part of my past would just simply fall away. But instead, the pressure and the stress of ministry only amplified the poor choices that I was making. And this came at a, a, kind of culminated for me a couple years into ministry when I finally admitted, 
I couldn't fix what was broken on my own. And so I raised my hand and I went to our elders and leaders at the church at the time and I confessed. I said, I am struggling with this sin in my life that I can't seem to move beyond things that that came all the way back to my childhood. And after meeting with them, they decided that it would be best to remove me from ministry. I never thought I would be the pastor to be let go for moral failure. And, And that decision, in hindsight, was the best decision they could have made, but it was also the hardest season that I've ever had to walk through in life. And, and I can stand here today confidently saying that God used that season in my life to bring restoration to what was broken, to bring healing to the wounds of my past. But even today, the enemy wants to grab that scrapbook and say, Josh, you shouldn't be in ministry. You know what you've done. Josh, you can't possibly help someone else. Don't you remember what was done to you? And this is so important. Our enemy wants to use our past to destroy our future. He wants to use our past to destroy our future. He takes that scrapbook, all of those low points in our lives, and he uses them to make us feel bad about who we are. He's using your past to detour your future and to define your present identity, and that is condemnation. The belief that that you have not shaken your past, and if we allow the devil that foothold, if we allow him to play those tracks of of shame in our lives, then, then what God's word has said, the truth that God has revealed to us just gets pushed into the background. And I'm telling us, we cannot allow the enemy to use our past to destroy our future. We have got to flip the script on the voice of condemnation. But here's the key. It's not found in what we can do. In fact, I want us to continue on in this passage to see what God does in verse 2. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. You see, rebuke is actually a curse. God is cursing Satan. If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, we see how this plays out where the serpent, Satan, is tempting Eve, and she gives in, she sins, and then you've got Adam who follows right along suit. He sins, and God puts a curse on the land, a curse on mankind, but he also put a curse on the serpent. And here in Zechariah 3, he is renewing that curse on Satan. And this is what he does night and day, day and night. Satan comes to accuse us, and what does God do? He curses Satan. He brings him all the way back to Genesis 3 and reminds him that he has been cursed, that he has been judged. Satan can remind us of our past, but he can't escape his future. The word of God is crystal clear on this. Satan's future is set He is judged. He is destined to an eternity in hell. There are no out clauses to the curse that God has placed on him. And and friends, when we hear that, we should rejoice. We should be so happy. Because no matter what Satan tries to say about our past, we know that our future is so much better than his. That is the truth. 
And God rebukes Satan. And I love this. It's as if God is just coming and saying, just shut up. It's just shut up, Satan. I mean, and that's the curse. I know for some families, that's a curse word in the household. But, but even when you get to the New Testament, you, you watch Jesus interact with demons. And what does he do? He tells them to shut up. Even when they tell the truth, he tells them to be quiet. Because it does no good to listen to any demon, to listen to Satan. Even if what's being said is true, we must learn to say, shut up. In Jesus' name. Shut up. <laughs> now, notice, notice what it doesn't say in, in the text. It doesn't say that Satan lied to God about Joshua. It says that he accused him, and he was right. Again, he spoke the truth. Satan accused Joshua of sins that he had actually committed. But just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful. And just because it's true, again, doesn't mean it's the whole truth. And Satan's accusation of Joshua was true, as we'll see in a second as we continue. In fact, let's go ahead and continue on in verse 3 now. It says that Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. Now again, context here is so important because clothing in the Bible represented who a person was. It represented their identity. And clothing, especially in the Old Testament, set people apart. In some cases, it really set people apart. I mean, if you were a priest, you had this, this linen robe on. You had this afad, which is like a big baseball catcher's chest protector. And, and then you've got this turban wrapped around the head. And so Joshua, he's got all of his special clothes on, but they're filthy. Now, sometimes in our translations, I think the translators are a little too uh, nice and tidy, a little too PC. And in this case, the translators definitely went the more nice and clean it up uh, approach. The word filthy here is not just spilling food on your shirt. It's not spilling coffee on your tie or just simply getting some grass stains on your knees. In fact, I don't know how many of you were raised in church families, uh, if you were and if you came to church on Sundays, you, you probably remember having these special church clothes, you know, clothes that were really neat and clean, highly uncomfortable. I mean, I, I remember my shirt feeling like it was starched 10 times over. You couldn't move, right? And, and you were never, ever allowed to play in those church clothes because mom was afraid that you'd fall down and, and get grass stains. And apparently that was the worst thing that could happen to your church clothes is to get grass stains on them. And, and so here is Joshua. He's in his church clothes and they're filthy. I mean, imagine, ladies, that it's your wedding day. You've got your hair done, your makeup done, got those fake eyelashes on <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and after you're done getting ready, you, you go and get that expensive wedding dress that, that you've spent so much time picking out, and, and there it is, a, a little stain. I mean, it's just a little bitty stain, but it's, it's right there in the center. Some of y'all are like, that whole day would be ruined. Now imagine that you go to put on the wedding dress and it is filthy, covered, in, covered from head to toe. And it's not just mud. This is something else that's brown. It's filthy and covered in, yeah, straight out of Alex's uh, grinder pump, you know? I mean, it is, 
just covered. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to go back last week and watch the message. But the word filthy here in Zechariah 3, it means excrement. I mean, the picture that, that God is painting here is this very detailed vision that Joshua is covered from head to toe in feces. I mean, this is disgusting. And he didn't have just a little spot on him. This wasn't a little coffee stain. He is covered in it, and it stinks. And as gross as that is, it is so significant because a priest that is defiled can't do his job. In fact, if this vision is of the Day of Atonement, then on that day, even one little spot would have prevented the priest from going into the Holy of Holies. And Joshua doesn't just have one little spot. He's covered in it. I mean, talk about it hitting the fan. And the reality, which I know we know already, is there will be days in our life when we feel like that. When Satan starts flipping through that scrapbook of our sins and he starts to turn up the volume on that soundtrack of shame in our life and he tries to throw the truth in our face and it's in those moments that we have to turn to God and hear the whole truth and nothing but the truth because the sins of our past are only part of the truth. The rest of the truth is that God has. God has sent his son to die for you. God has forgiven you. God has redeemed you. God has adopted you into his family. In fact, let's look at what God did to Joshua, who is covered in filth in verse 4. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Now that word see, it means to stand back and watch. It's as if God is saying, let me take care of this. God is saying, I've got this. Don't you worry about this. I have taken away your sins. I've not just covered them. I've not just pardoned them for one year. It says, taken away, removed, completely obliterated. And in fact, this verse is even echoed in John 1.29 when it says, behold, again, stand back and watch this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he took your sins. He took the filth and removed it from you. He placed it on himself, and then he paid the price for us so that we could be free. And then he put something new on us, a new identity in him. In fact, if there's one thing that you need to hear today, it's this. What God takes away, no one can put back on you. What God takes away, no one can put back on you. And what God puts on you, no one can take away. Amen. You see, it's salvation. When we come to know Jesus, when we put our trust and our faith in him, he removes all the sin from our life, all of it. Not just once a year, not just once a month, not just once a week, once and for all. This is the good news. And even though we can't escape our past, even though we can't clean our records, even though we can't go back and undo some of the stuff that we've done, God says, I can clean the slate. Not only does he say, I can, he says, I have. 
In fact, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome in the first century, he speaks about the faith of Abraham. And he notes that Abraham is not righteous because of the good stuff that he did. He was righteous by faith in spite of the bad stuff that he did. And this is what the Apostle Paul says as he applies this principle to our lives in Romans 4, verses 24 and 25. He says, God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. All it takes is believing to clean your record. And he was handed Jesus over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. You see, because of our sins, we deserve death. And because of our past, we don't deserve to be made right. This is what the enemy wants us to live in. But because of what God has done, we have new life. And instead of replaying the soundtrack of shame in our lives, we need to turn the dial and listen to the voice that says God has. See, our enemy is going to continue flipping through that scrapbook, but that doesn't mean we need to. Your past, your past is like a dead language. It's like Latin. (laughs) And we need to unlearn the dead language of our past. But too many of us are bilingual. We understand God's voice, but we are too fluent in this dead language of our past. How do you stop being fluent in a language? You stop speaking it. You stop speaking. How do you learn to be fluent in another language? You immerse yourself in it. The more airtime we give to our past, the easier it is to be used against us. But the more airtime we give to the truth of what God says, the more fluent we become in it. Friends, God is not as concerned about our past as he is excited about our future. At the end of the day, we need to rest in the promise of Romans 8.1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, to flip the script on condemnation, it's not about our past. It's about our position. And our position, when it is in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any condemnation. In fact, maybe that's the takeaway for you today. It is to memorize Romans 8.1. And, and every time the enemy tries to bring up those memories, you just say Romans 8.1. I am not condemned because of my position in Christ. You start to hear that murmuring from the enemy, Romans 8.1. I am not condemned because of my position in Christ. But I also want to recognize today that there may be some who you're feeling that sense of condemnation, but you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And that position is ultimately the result of our faith. So I'm gonna invite us all to go ahead and and bow our heads and close our eyes in this moment. And if that's you today, whether you are here with us in this room or watching online, if you would like to trust Jesus to make him the Lord of your life, to allow him to remove the sin and the condemnation from your life, I would invite you to just simply pray a prayer like this. You're going to hear people all over the room pray this, and, and prayer is just simply talking to God. But would you say something like this? You say, Dear God, 
I know that I'm a sinner. I've done things that have hurt others and things that have hurt myself. But God, I trust in what Jesus has done. And I receive his work on the cross. And in the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and want to follow you. Would you help me to follow you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just say that if you prayed that prayer today, we really believe that that is the best decision that you could ever make. And our hope and prayer here at Battle Creek is that you wouldn't just say yes to Jesus, but that you would continue in this faith journey. In fact, the next step of faith that Jesus asks us to is to be baptized in him. It's a a public declaration of this inward faith within our lives. And the best way that we can help you to take that next step is if you'd fill out one of those connect cards and just indicate that you made a decision. And you could text Battle Creek Church, all one word, to 94090 in order to make uh, that connect card. And we would love to help you take that next step. And we also would love to invite you back next week uh, for week five. Uh, Pastor Alex will be back concluding this series, Flip the Script.